Good morning. I want you to try to imagine the perfect plant, one whose stalks and roots were delicious, whether roasted, sautéed, or boiled, a plant with medicinal qualities to treat a variety of ailments and flowers that were so aromatic that they made the most delectable perfume. In ancient times, such a treasure existed, and it was called the Cephalium plant. About 2,000 years ago, the the famed Cephalium plant was thought to be eaten into extinction by everyone's favorite Roman emperor, Nero. It was so useful and so desirable and so rare that it was literally worth its weight in gold. Well, while doing his job as a pharmacognosist, Professor Miski stumbled upon the flowering plant called Ferula dradenia. Professor Miski stumbled upon this flower uh, while he was uh, doing some, some work um, around Mount Hassan in Turkey. Now, I I know most of you know what a pharmacognosist does, but just in case you don't know, here's the Wikipedia cliff notes. Pharmacognosy is the study of the physical, chemical, biochemical, and biological properties of the potential drug substances of natural origin um, and the search for new drugs from natural sources. Basically, they look at plants and see how they affect the body when they're ingested. <clears throat> After stumbling upon the Ferula Dradenia in the shadows of Mount Hassan, the professor went to work evaluating the plant's properties. As he did, he was surprised to find that there were more and more similarities between the descriptions of the ancient Cephalium plant and the Ferula Dradenia. The striated stems, the fruits, and the possible, possibly the roots all seem to point to the idea that the ferula species could possibly be the Cephalium plant of antiquity. And so, Professor Miski was overjoyed to discover something far better than he could have expected to find in the shadows of Mount Hassan. In our text, we are going to join a person of fame and antiquity as they discover something even far more valuable and far more exciting than any plant on earth. Would you please stand as Autumn comes to read from the book that we love? Romans 4, 1 to 12. What then shall we say that Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh, has discovered regarding this matter? For if Abraham was declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his pay is not credited due to grace, but due to obligation. But to the one who does not work, but believes in the one who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith is credited as righteous, righteousness. So even David himself speaks regarding the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will never count sin. Is this blessedness then for the circumcision or also for the uncircumcision? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited to him? Was he circumcised at the time or not? No, he was not circumcised but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So that he would become the father of all those who believe but have never been circumcised, that they too could have righteousness credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham possessed when he was still uncircumcised. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we come to this text, um, Paul has been laying out a detailed argument for the gospel, the good news. And here in our text, he introduces Abraham into his argument uh, when he says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh, has discovered regarding this matter? Now, the question that pops into my head, and maybe perhaps popped into your head, is what is the matter that they are discussing? And that answer is found in the previous paragraph, which is printed in your worship guide for you. In verse 27 of chapter 3, he says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Two things stand out from this paragraph, and that is, what about boasting? Where does does that fit into this picture? And secondly, what about the Gentiles? But, of course, the main subject that Paul is discussing is the good news of justification by faith. And so we could frame it in this way. Paul is addressing the question of one How can someone be justified before God? And two, who can be justified before God? And so, in order to answer these questions, Paul brings in, as he is this lawyer, he brings in exhibit A. He's like, here is my first layer of evidence, and that is our father Abraham. Exhibit A. So, As Paul introduces Abraham, he says that Abraham discovered something. What is it that Abraham discovered about these matters? And as we answer this question, we will walk through our passage and we will see that Abraham discovered justification is by faith alone, which means there's absolutely no room for boasting. Abraham also discovered that justification is twofold. It involves both forgiveness and credit. And Abraham discovered that justification is for everyone who believes, not just the circumcised. So 
Let's jump in and see how Abraham discovered that justification is by faith alone and how there's absolutely no room for boasting. Paul starts his argument with a hypothetical question. He says, now if if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. But there is no room for boasting before God, no matter what. In boasting, you see, there's a sense of pride, a sense of self-promotion or self-aggrandizement. It would be like Pastor Sam saying he's the greatest ultimate Frisbee player at Ironworks Church and just blasting it out to everyone. I mean, (laughs) and just continually blasting it. Uh, Well... Sam, listen to what God says about boasting, would you? Um, The Lord said in Judges uh, chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and following, it says, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And here, Paul affirms what the scripture teaches, that there is no room for pride or boasting before God Almighty. After all, it is in him that we move and live and have our being. And it is from him that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Even Sam can't boast before God regarding his ultimate Frisbee skills because those gifts are from God. He might be able to boast before you, but not before God, okay? Well, Paul says Abraham can't boast in his works since they would be attributed to God and his grace. But does this necessarily mean that Abraham was not justified by works? Good question. That is why Paul then examines the scripture to see what it says about Abraham being declared righteous. And he turns to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so, as we look at the scriptures about boasting and about how Abraham was justified, we can confidently say that Abraham was declared righteous by faith apart from works and that Abraham's boast is only, only in the covenant love of God alone. Well, how many of you like payday? Anyone? Uh, Just a couple, okay. I, I like payday. I don't know about you, but I like payday. And Paul next talks about 
payday to further his argument that justification is by faith alone. Now, he says, now to the one who works, his pay is not credited due to grace, but due to obligation. But to the one who does not work, but believes in the one who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. Basically, what Paul is saying is, if you work, you get paid. There's a contract that's made between you and the employer, and if you work this amount, you will get paid this amount. The payment is therefore an obligation because of that contract. It is obligated to pay for the work that you have put in. It is not credit or grace, but it is obligation. It is not grace, it's what is fair. And we've already discussed previously how we do not want what is fair from God. If we get what is fair, we are in for a horrible, horrible experience of judgment. And so as much as we love payday, the gospel gives us something so much better than payday. It gives us grace. We get God's extravagance. We get his mercy we get the gift of his very own son. We receive as a gift something far more valuable than any of the riches in this world. We receive the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so Abraham discovered that justification is by faith alone. There's no room for boasting. It is from the first to the last a gift from God. And so now we'll turn our attention and we'll see how Abraham discovered that justification is twofold. It involves both forgiveness and credit. You can see Paul hinting at this in verse 5 when he speaks of God as, quote, the one who declares the ungodly righteous. See, Paul knew Abraham had his faults. And for those who are interested, you can find a previous sermon series on our website called Family Drama. Uh, it's where we took a deep dive into the sordid past of the fathers of the faith, including Abraham. Go check it out. Abraham was not perfect. For instance, Abraham came from a pagan family who worshipped false gods. Abraham, in fear, traded his very own wife for his freedom. Abraham attempted to take control of the very promise that God had given him. And there's more, but we'll leave it at that. That's, that's enough. Uh, and sure, when you compare apples to apples, Abraham might be a pretty good guy when you compare him to other people. But that doesn't amount to much when you stand before a holy and righteous God. And so Paul continues his argument, and he brings in this other fellow named David. David is exhibit B. He brings him in as a guest witness. And so in verse 6, he says, Even David 
himself speaks regarding the blessedness of the man to whom God's, God credits righteousness apart from works. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will never count sin. You see, Paul is trying to tell us that justification is a twofold process. It means having our debts forgiven and having righteousness credited to our account. How many of you have debt right now? Uh, yeah, okay. Me too. I also have way too much debt. Uh, how many of you would love to have all of your debts completely forgiven? Me too. So if, you, if one of you raised your hand and you have student debt, you know that President Biden is working really hard to try to forgive student loan debt. And if I had any student loan debt, I would be in the first, first in line to receive that mercy. Uh, whether or not Biden is able to actually be successful in this endeavor is yet to be seen, but we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the debt of our sin is paid for. God is the one who forgives our lawless deeds, who covers our sins, and who takes that black pen and scratches out every last penny of debt on your account, completely paid for, no more debt. As the scripture says, Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross, and he canceled the record of debt that stood against us, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Just let that sink in for a moment. Jesus Christ has taken every one of your sins and blacked it out. It is gone and forgiven. And if this is you, friends, David calls you blessed, joyful, privileged. So most of you who have debt would love to have someone pay off your debts. Now, who here also would like to have um, $1 million deposited into your checking account? Anyone? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're honest, you could do a lot of good with a million dollars, right? <clears throat> well, that is what Paul is trying to get to, to uh, lay out for us here. Not only does Christ cancel all of our debts, but he also gives us the gift of riches in his righteousness. He not only pays off the negative balances, but he deposits into our account his very own righteousness. This is what theologians call double imputation, where our sins are imputed to Christ on the cross, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith. 
It is also, uh, another way of looking at it is called the active obedience of Christ or the passive obedience of Christ. And there's a, a story of the founder of Westminster Seminary, J. Gresham Machen. He was in a hospital suffocating slowly as he battled pneumonia. And on his deathbed, he related a dream to his friend and pastor, Sam. Not this Sam, some other Sam. Um, but he said, he said this, Sam, it's glorious. It is absolutely glorious. Sam, isn't the Reformed faith grand? And just before he passed away into the next world, Machen dictated a telegram to his good friend, John Murray. These are the last words that were on that telegram. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. So you might be like, all right, this guy was a seminary like theologian. What in the world is the active and passive obedience of Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad all of you asked me that. The active obedience of Christ is his perfect life lived here on earth. His perfect righteousness while he lived on this planet. Or you could say it's his fulfillment of the law as a human being. And the passive obedience of Christ is his suffering and death on the cross for the sins of his people. Much like double imputation. Our sins to Christ, his righteousness to us. And what Abraham discovered is that justification is a twofold process. All of Abraham's sins would be imputed to Christ. And Christ's righteousness would be imputed to Abraham. <clears throat> and so we'll move on to our third point, which is Abraham discovered that justification is for everyone who believes, not just the circumcised. In verse 9, uh, he says, is the blessedness then for the circumcision or also for the uncircumcision? We say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited to him? Was he circumcised at the time or not? No, he was not circumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised so that he would become the father of all those who believe. Paul asks, who is the blessing of justification for? What did Abraham discover about this? Well, Abraham discovered that it was when he believed God, that was when righteousness was credited to him. And Paul asks this very incisive question, when, when did that happen? Well, there's a little timeline here for you. It happened when he was uncircumcised. God called Abraham, 
God blessed Abraham. God justified Abraham. Then Abraham was circumcised. If Abraham was justified before his circumcision, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that circumcision is not necessary for justification. Does that make sense? If Abraham was justified and he wasn't circumcised, we therefore also can be justified while uncircumcised. Well, I guess that begs the question, why? Why were Abraham and his offspring circumcised? But, you know, before we answer that question, there is kind of another question that we have to ask. And I'll let one of you answer this for me. What is circumcision? Anyone? No one wants to, no one. Oh, yes, young man right there. What is circumcision? Oh, I hope not, for your sake. He said, I, I think I did it last year. I hope not, for his sake. Um, so <laughs> let me explain to you so that you know for sure that you were not circumcised last year. <clears throat> it is where they cut off the foreskin of the male genitalia. The foreskin is cut off. And Paul says that Abraham received the circumcision as a sign and a seal of the righteousness he received by faith. Paul says circumcision is a sign. It points to something. What does circumcision point to? Well, the book of Deuteronomy gives us the key to unlock that question. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16 says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. See, God knew that our hearts are deceitful and wicked. They are the very source of evil and lawlessness and sin. And the only way for a person to change was to have their heart circumcised. God would have to cut out the evil from our hearts and give us a heart that was devoted to him. Circumcision is bloody and painful. So once again, I hope that you were not circumcised last year. It is very bloody, it's very painful, and it involves the organ by which procreation takes place, which is why it is directly tied to the promise that Abraham was given. He was promised a seed who would then give birth to nations who would worship God. And in this seed, every nation and every family would be blessed. And in order for this seed of Abraham to be a blessing to every family and nation on this earth, he would have to be cut off from the land of the living. He would have to experience something far more bloody, far more painful 
and circumcision, Abraham's seed would have to die on a cross. That is what circumcision is pointing to. It is pointing to Jesus Christ. But because Jesus has come and he has already paid for our sins with his blood on the cross, it is no longer appropriate for circumcision to be the sign and seal of our faith. Um, It has now been replaced with a sign more appropriate to this dispensation by the sign and seal of baptism. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this about baptism. Baptism is the sign and seal of the covenant of grace of the believers in grafting into Christ, of rebirth, of remission of sins, and of the believers yielding to God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Now, you may be wondering, why? Why was circumcision, why has it become obsolete? Why is it? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith helps us here too. Sorry, I'm completely missing up my slides here. Here we go. The covenant was administered differently in the time of the law before Christ than in the time of the gospel after Christ. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision. Oh, did it change? Okay, okay. Um, The Paschal Lamb and other types and ordinances given to the Jewish people, all foreshadowing Christ. For that time, the covenant administered under the law through the operation of the Spirit was sufficient and effective in instructing the elect and building up their faith in the promised Messiah by whom they would have full remission of sins and eternal salvation. And then it goes on to say, it's not working on my end here. Okay. Under the gospel of Christ himself, the substance of God's grace was revealed. Jesus Christ. The ordinance of the New Testament are therefore preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Although these are fewer in number and are administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet they are available to all nations, Jews and Gentiles. In them, the spiritual power of the covenant of grace is more fully developed. The reason why circumcision is obsolete is because it pointed to Jesus, to the blood that Christ poured out for us. It points to Jesus' death that saves us. And so it is no longer appropriate for these gruesome characteristics of the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. The reality of the sign has come. And there's another reason why it became obsolete. And it's hinted at there in the Westminster Confession of Faith. The reason why was because circumcision was by its very nature limited to whom it could be applied. It could only be applied 
to someone who was male. And additionally, it could only be applied to those who became a part of the nation of Israel. But baptism broadens the scope immensely. Baptism can be administered to anyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, male or female, anywhere that there is water and an ordained minister of the faith. You see, what was signified by circumcision has been replaced by water, which washes us clean, which shows that the the Holy Spirit has come upon us, which shows that we have received the righteousness of Christ. And it's also portrayed for us at this table where Christ's body is broken. His blood is shed. Why? So that God might declare each and every one of you righteous. That your sins have been imputed to Christ and his righteousness has been imputed to you even if you're uncircumcised. Friends, this is what Abraham discovered about justification, that you can be justified by faith alone, that, that you can have the twofold benefit of justification, your sins forgiven, and righteousness credited to your account, and that you can partake in this even if you are not a Jew, because his salvation is for anyone who believes. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for the gift of justification. Thank you that our father Abraham was able to discover the intricacies of this justification, that it's by faith alone, that he can rest in the righteousness of God alone, that he knew that his sins would be forgiven and that a righteousness that was not his own would be credited to his account and that this justification, the blessing of justification, would be for every family and nation in the world through the promised seed, Jesus Christ. Help us to celebrate this and enjoy it as we come to this table through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.